This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? It is not Jonah Goldberg, but this is The Remnant, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. But I am Chris Steyerwald, so sorry, that's your unfortunate circumstance. But I have brought Levin for this Goldbergless loaf. Uh, I have brought, well, uh, maybe I'll put it to you this way. When I write history, I am doing a poor imitation of this person, because this person has the capacity to write history like a journalist to write history rooted in the context of its time. Uh, This person has written three very important, and I mean that in the complimentary sense of that, three very important books about 20th century American history. She has written other books, uh, but the three that are germane to our discussion today, uh, and you'll know who it is as soon as I list them, Uh, The Forgotten Man in 2007, which was a history of the Great Depression with an economist's eye. In 2013, Coolidge, the definitive biography of my favorite president of the 20th century. And in 2019, The Great Society, A New History. Joining us is Amity Schles. She is uh, the chairwoman of the Coolidge Foundation. She she is the, the boss over there. Uh, you uh, have read her at the Wall Street Journal. You have read her at Forbes. You have read her everywhere. And you are a very welcome guest. Thank you for being with us. Well, I'm so glad to be with you, Chris. You know, it's good to most books. Like I wrote a book about populism because populists were thick on the ground. Uh, and a publisher said, hey, why don't you write something about all these populists that are climbing over the gates? Um, and so I did. It's even better if you can write the books before the things happen. And your timing has been pretty impeccable. You wrote The Forgotten Man. The Forgotten Man came out in 2007, a year before the financial panic uh, that led to all of the discussions about policy in the Great Depression and all of those things. Uh, You wrote Coolidge before uh, the sort of anti-Coolidge movement took hold in the Republican Party. Uh, And you wrote The Great Society before the coronavirus pandemic. And I want people to think about this. We were certainly in a progressive and sort of nationalist populist vibe in American politics when you wrote that book. But it was the pandemic that really tipped things over into the sort of grandiose, large-scale ideas about what kind of powers the government has to change things and reinvent the future and do all of that. So. I'm sure there's some luck involved, but uh, good job. At, as, as we would say in West Virginia, you saw the seam in the rock. Seam in the rock. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, I think the COVID reaction was as important as the reaction to 9-11. And the reaction to 9-11, let's just start with domestic. Yeah. Was wonderful, by and large. Pulled together. Even New York, which is so maligned, showed its best spirit in re- reacting to 9-11. There it was. Ground zero. And, you know, to this day, I'm proud of New York's reaction to that catastrophe. COVID was sort of the other way. Yeah. 
you're like, don't go that way, please, guys. Don't go that way, please, guys. And yet the country went that way. And I, I think I wrote a, a column somewhere or said somewhere, we all, we always lived in a an authoritarian state. We just didn't know it till COVID. <laughs> that that was yeah. the creepy feeling. Oh, I I always knew this, but I didn't know it until now. Um, and so that was quite interesting. I, I think a lot of us thought Americans wouldn't wear masks for more than three weeks, even though people died just by our nature. We read the country wrong. And I remember the first time the uh, government of the District of Columbia sent a text to my phone that I had not solicited or signed up for to as a we're tracking a COVID. And I was like, uh, they have my phone number and they can text me and they know who I am. And they did. And it was you were right. Creepy. So I, let's let's think about this moment um, as we record this. It has been reported and I it, and with lots of reason to believe that it is so that uh, later this month, the Republican Party will gather at the Ronald Reagan uh, Presidential Library in California to have their debate and that it will be uh, it will focus on Reaganite uh, foreign policy. We'll talk about uh, a, a Reaganite domestic economic agenda of opening up opportunity and increasing ec economic freedom. And the front runner for the Republican nomination will not be there. He will be in Detroit. And it is said that he might even go join United Auto Workers on the picket line uh, in their uh, still young and mostly symbolic, but with the potential to grow into something much larger, uh, strike against the first ever strike against all three big three auto work auto manufacturers, and the reason I asked you to indulge us today is when I hear and Republicans and Democrats, whether it's Josh Hawley on the right or Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, but then certainly Bernie Sanders uh, and Joe Biden, when they talk about the idea of having labor unions uh, in the front seat. Uh, when it comes to setting American policy, when it comes to how our economy is arranged and arranging our economy, they sound as if it had never been tried before, as if no one had ever thought, well, gee, we should get the unions here at the table and driving policy, which is why everyone who has not done so already should get the Great Society, which is just a great history. So walk us through that arc. Talk about, talk, where does that take you? Well, there are two questions vis-a-vis -vis just labor. The book is about, say, 1960 to 1972. But, but so I include Richard Nixon in the Great Society and JFK. But vis-a-vis -vis unions, which is our topic today here, two questions. Did union, can unions have influence in America and be a big part of politics, which feels new uh, to younger people at least, right? And two, what happens when they do those two things? Uh, so should I start with can unions, shall we? When you look at, uh, there was a, an analyst who commented that Sean Fain of UAW was, uh, was dramatic and that this was not your grandfather's UAW. And I have a National Review column coming out today or tomorrow that says, the problem is, it is. It is your grandfather's UAW. And the grandpa was Walter Ruther. It's not even a name we know anymore. It's spelled like R-E-U-T-H-E-R, -E -E and it's pronounced Ruther. From my, from my hometown of Wheeling, West Virginia. And, and if you live in Detroit, you still take there's two, the two main highways that, come, that go north out of Detroit. The one that goes towards the suburbs, the one that goes towards the more affluent suburbs is the Chrysler management. And the one that goes to the western, to the eastern side is the Ruther, which goes towards the union, the, the more blue collar suburbs of Detroit. Oh, the Ruther. So if, if you're of a certain age, when you were growing up at night, you'd hear, uh, I don't know, the casualty count from Vietnam. And the next line from Walter Cronkite or someone would be, Walter Ruther said. So it was a refrain in the ear of us children 
Um, it, well, and then powerful Wilbur Mills of the Ways and Means Committee, names like that. And you heard them every single night. So Ruther was actually a wonderful man in the sense that he was a lovable man. As far as I can tell, he was not corrupt. He was not unnecessarily violent. He was the kind of person you'd be proud to follow, except he was wrong. And his story is the following. He came uh, out of West Virginia. In fact, his father, Valentine, uh, was a socialist, the German kind. Uh, remember, in Germany, there was a failed revolution in 1848. A lot of those Germans came here. And, and Valentine did not want a Carnegie Library in the town, as Chris was just reminding me, uh, his town in Wheeling, because he didn't want to seem bribed by Andrew Carnegie. If you've ever if you've ever been to Wheeling, West Virginia and wondered why it has such an ugly public library, the answer is Walter Ruther's dad. Walter Ruther's dad. And he had these three tremendous sons. I had more, but three we we know. Walter, Victor, and Roy. And off they went to Detroit in nineteen twenty seven, which is to say really after a very strong decade of automaker growth and got jobs in the worst shops. And uh, that was the time of um, uh, where Frederick Taylor was was the other god besides Henry Ford. And efficiency was the goal on the floor and there weren't many health protections. And in that snapshot of, of industry, the Ruthers determined they would unionize Detroit. It wasn't unionized. Uh, and um, I don't know how fast you want me to go, but eventually um, Walter, who was a redhead, uh, a very a good speaker, by the way, he's all over YouTube if you want to look, be, um, did unionize the big three with bloody battles that are famous. I was going to say, talk a little bit about the battle on the bridge and what what that annealing moment was like. Well, it was annealing because it was on public property. So you're the union. You're trying to unionize a big factory. I think it was River Rouge, right? It was Ford. So Ford was the last holdout. Ford started his company. He was not a corporate guy. He was not accustomed to compromises. And um, they were distributing pamphlets, the Ruther team on unionism, and thugs came and beat them up a good. And they were photographed by photographers they acknowledge and were arranged. They knew that they might get hit. And they it was sort of like you go on that square of the sidewalk where uh, nobody can claim they own it, but very close to the factory. So Ford's men had bloodied the faces of honest men, not even on Ford property. And it was a great case. It was a great picture. It went around the world. Ford gave in, one could say perhaps, alas, uh, Detroit was unionized, the big three reunionized, and the Ruthers got management of what we now call the UAW. Okay, what are they going to do? In the 50s, as automakers are making enormous profits, remember this industry is much more important than it is today. And you want to ask what unions affect on the importance of autos is in America over time. Uh, they were making money hand over fist. Uh, so Ruther, in the 50s, exacted various concessions from the company, such as hospitals, healthcare, pensions, healthcare for seniors, all things that seem to us, all right, you know. Uh, and at the time, well, it looked like the automakers could afford that. The automakers could afford anything. Right. The, the phenomenon of what was still a relatively new industry, right? Uh, the idea of large-scale auto manufacture didn't come in until the 20s. And then after the federal government bought all of the bombers, all of the tanks, all of everything that, the, that built out the big three during the Second World War, here was the United States, the world's car manufacturer, right? Uh, Germany and Japan were obviously not in the car business. Uh, and nor was Korea, nor was China, nor any, any of the competitors that we have now. And profits were going up so fast and so much that the automakers wanted peace, right? Whatever the price we have to pay to have, have prevent work stoppages, whatever we need to do to keep the gravy train rolling, we're going to do. 
Right. There was a joke, maybe Ford will buy the U.S. government. It was growing faster, right? And, and that, that more GM, that, that uh, made sense. But we were in a bubble at that time. If you can imagine it, the Marshall Plan was written in part in the name of getting Europeans to have money so they could buy things that we made, right? That they, the, the export idea, what didn't hadn't really penetrated in Japan was even worse. And, uh, you know, so there's a joke they always say about the 50s. They seemed golden. Democrats want to go back to the 50s so they could work there. Republicans want to go back to the 50s so they could live there. Yeah, and that's really the way it was. But uh, there was an awful, I, I mean, I think the 50s had their dark side, but Ruther was the star of that period and he got unprecedented concessions from the automakers. Then I, I want to mention one other thing, and this is on YouTube. There's an interesting little aberration or side path he takes where he moots in the 1958 negotiations, negotiations. Imagine he has at least, you know, maybe a million workers at this point. That means he can carry a state, important politically. He moots the idea in 58 of profit sharing from the automakers. And whoa, well, the automakers are like, oh no, that sounds like socialism to us. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, particularly not a plan. That sounds like Germany. And we know why we have workers in the boardroom in Germany. It's to prevent the communists from coming in, but we don't do that here. You know, the German work model inspired Ruther much and, and the German work model does, I think the new uh, nationalists or new conservatives will will pick up the German work model because workers were in the boardroom, labor in the boardroom, and they did have immense training programs, uh, apprenticeships. Anyway, that's not a good idea. And in an interview, Mike Wallace puffing all the while on a parliament cig cigarette, parliament was his sponsor, Kind of <laughs> and, and, and Walter Ruther, you like you end up sympathizing with Walter Ruther because Walter Ruther did not smoke. He was sort of a Puritan, a Puritan German uh, Union guy, like his father. He lived what he what he did said, uh, braves this and explains all about the profit sharing idea. And you know, old Mike Wallace mocks Walter Ruther, and you end up siding with Ruther as you watch it. Wait a minute, he has an idea. What's so wrong with this? Does it have to be socialism or Profit sharing is a flawed concept, but it, it moves very quickly to stock sharing, which was also a big idea in the 50s, share ownership by employees. Well, what if today's debate were how many shares of Ford and GM do the workers on strike get? I think yeah. that's fine. It used to be whole pensions were made of company stock because it aligns the interest of the worker with the employer. And what I argue in great society is this whole class war thing was visited upon us by Ruther, was overly influenced by Europe and by uh, progressives in the 60s. America is not na naturally a class country. It, we're not like Europe. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their client, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So so call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit TNUSA.com slash remnant. That's TNUSA.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could 
look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. It's just like you load the app and it says, what pictures do you want in your frame? And you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. We recently celebrated the anniversary uh, of the monumental moments in America's civil rights movement. And here in Washington, if you go, uh, if you go to the Lincoln Memorial and go to where Martin Luther King stood, you will not think, I bet there was a labor boss here. I bet a union boss was present at the Lincoln Memorial for the, I have a dream speech and this monumental and this monumental scene. But he was there. He was there. And thank you for the segue to the 60s. So once Walter, our friend, and he's really worth having a look at, moved to the 60s, he was pretty much done with socializing or social democratizing union land. And now he was on to socializing or making America uh, social democratic. But, but, you, but tell, tell us about the political power that allowed him to do that. Well, even I think it would be Ted Kennedy interviewed much later said, that's power. Well, start with the 1960 election. The Ruthers like the Kennedys, the Kennedys like the Ruthers. Two bands of brothers, two clans. Two bands, two clans. You look, you see in the mirror, brothers, in brother's strength. Uh, they didn't like, I don't know, Jimmy Hoffa, the Kennedys, right? Uh, but so these were the good unions and they teamed up. and. Ted Kennedy said, man, that was political power, because when Walter said vote this way in the days before um, political giving of unions was constrained and the amount that could be extracted from a worker's paycheck for political giving was likewise constrained. We've had some recent court decisions on that. Walter just took the money and went within, ran for the Kennedys, and he had workers in the UAW campaign for the Kennedys. And the Kennedy and uh, they, you know, it's a huge dispute. Did Kennedy really win, or did Richard Nixon? What is undisputed is that the union brought um, unions generally brought hundreds and hundreds of thousands, and probably millions of votes to Kennedy in key states like Michigan and Illinois. So they knew it, and it was acknowledged. It's a really good movie, um, Brothers on the Line by Sasha Ruther one of the family members uh, where the Kennedys just say, yeah, that's true. So he kind of had, he had more than an in with the Kennedys. And what I never understood till I researched this is what did he want to do? Number one, civil rights. That's a long way from uh, getting, um, I don't know, a better lunch at the union or a pet better paycheck in Detroit or Flint. He wanted to advance civil rights in America. And Kennedy egged him on on that. You can see it in speeches. Ruther wanted that. And he was right there for Martin Luther King. What I didn't know until I wrote this, how right there was he? When Martin Luther King was in the Birmingham jail, Kennedy didn't have the money and it wasn't right for the federal government to send $160,000 down. So they called Walter Ruther and he took $160,000 down. His mended with belts to carry cash that bulge and bailed MLK out. And uh, it's reported, in fact, in a book by Ten Eyck, which is a newer one. um, And I think also in my book somewhere, Ruther was genuinely curious. He said, like, hey, why did you call me to bail out MLK? 
And um, Robert Kennedy, the attorney general, said you were the only one we could think of who would just go. When I read that and I reread your book this year because of it was so timely and it, it, it lines up so well. And also because I hate the uh, brutalist mid-century architecture. I hate it too. I think that's really key here. For, pe- for people who visit our nation's capital and you say, why do we have these hideously ugly buildings that look like alien spaceships that have landed uh, near the mall? Why is the Department of Labor, the Department of Health and Human Services, why is HUD, why are these buildings so ugly? And why did Washington, D.C. have such a disordered economic life and urban plan uh, the, you will find it in Amity's book. You will you will read it there, and it's and it's awesome. Let's just talk about Ruther's damage, though. The, I I thought the parallel that I saw, and this is probably goofy, but the Kennedys reaching out to Ruther reminded me of Teddy Roosevelt uh, reaching out uh, to why am I drawing a blank? Uh, J.P. Morgan uh, during a financial crisis, right? You go to the most powerful people on your side. Who's the most powerful? I'm in a jam politically. Who is the most powerful, wealthy person on my side? And for the Kennedys, the answer was Ruther. uh, And they knew that he would be likely to do it because, as you say, he had already moved beyond the sort of pedestrian concerns of getting better contracts with the automakers and had a vision for a really, and as you say, a sweet man, a well-intentioned man, but for really wholesale systemic change in the United States. Right. But he took the snapshots. He saw bitter snapshots from our past and said, this is, this is America unless we become a social democracy. Very inspired by the Europeans. He had his own a mediocre Corbusian architect, uh, Oscar Stonerov, who has a tragic role in the story. But anyway, it, to, there were other parts, of course, beyond civil rights to Ruther's actions. One was um, he wanted to rebuild the cities and do it in a compromise with the automakers, roads or cars. And his, the, the city's countryside classroom was what LBJ sought. Well, the city's part, model cities, was designed by Ruther at his kitchen table. Um, the, in fact, when Johnson announced this mega program, the program that shaped the 60s and we live in today, we live in Lyndon Johnson's America, it's been said, where did he go to do it? Michigan. He understood it was to Ruther he placed one of his first calls when Kennedy dies. And you can hear that call. I need you. I need you more than I ever need you in my life. Uh, but don't get distracted by Johnson. The power center, a power center, was also Ruther. So Ruther was going in the wrong direction. By the way, he also set MLK in the wrong direction to get him into rent strikes. You know, what MLK could have been doing was helping African-Americans buy homes. That might have been better. That's what the 60s taught us. Renting is not a good deal for many people. No, but Ruther liked rent as well, because he, again, European model, Europeans think renting is fine. Uh, and uh, he sent people in directions. Second point, which was a total shocker to me, um, was when I was growing up, you heard about the Port Huron statement and the youth at Port Huron. Free spirits went and spoke truth to power, independent souls to big bad parents, right? The Port Huron State, that was the sort of manifesto and declaration of independence of the 60s youth was this meeting of Port Huron. It's even mentioned in movies. I was going to say it lives on forever because it is mentioned in the Big Lebowski because Big Lebowski says, I was one of the original authors of the Port Huron Statement, not that watered down version that they came up with later. Oh, very good. Yeah, they they had a million versions. I had a lot of trouble getting what I could live with for the book as a somewhat authoritative version. But anyway, this little meeting was super cute. It was at you can just imagine it was on at one of those dumpy campgrounds, maybe made um, in the New Deal period along the big lake. Uh, and a bunch of people came and they wrote a manifesto. One was Tom Hayden, who later married Jane Fonda, was also I think a lawmaker. 
Another was Michael Harrington, who was sort of, I don't know, uh, J.D. Vance of the day. Oh, good. Nice. Nice. No, I have to live up to your analogy with J.P. Morgan. (laughs) I'm still thinking that through. I think it's great, Chris. Uh, Yeah, I didn't think of that. Uh, That is so great. Um, Anyway, these these names we know went. Michael Harrington, how the other half lived, sort of like Jacob Rees. uh, and uh, poverty in America. And uh, and what I discovered in researching this, which I discovered from union people, by the way, it wasn't a dark secret. They said it was this meeting was funded by Walter. In fact, one of the young ladies there, Sharon Jeffrey, maybe even still an undergraduate, maybe just out of college. Well, her mother was Millie Jeffrey, who was Walter Ruther's right arm. Millie did everything. And Victor Ruther ran the education department. They arranged the venue, which they had access to because it had some union aspect to it, this property at Port Huron. And they funded the student movement that came out of it, which was called Students for a Democratic Society, by which Walter envisioned, I don't know, you go into cities and help poor people navigate and fight back against their bad landlords. Something almost out of Bertolt Brecht. Take, take, take us on a, a, a sideling here just to talk about the war, the Vietnam War, uh, and where unions and Ruther were on the war. And because, of course, what one of the great uh, constructs in your book, you start each chapter with a tabulation of guns and butter, right? Because that that was the the... Lyndon Johnson famously said that you can have guns and butter, which is to say we can engage in a massive domestic spending undertaking to reinvent cities, to reinvent the way that people live. We can do it all, right? We can, we can lay all this money out and successfully prosecute the war in Vietnam. We can, we can do both. And at the beginning of each chapter, you give us a, a useful tally about what the cost of the war was and what the cost of domestic spending was. So talk about the interplay between the great society, unionism, uh, and the domestic agenda and what was happening in Vietnam. Well, the message was the war cost so much. And even today, historians will say the war cost so much so they had to interrupt the great society. But great society spending outpaced war spending. It was already a big burden by 71, 72. I have a chart in the back of the book where they, they cross. Uh, and I think uh, that's, that's not a sufficient explanation, that the war cost too much. We knew we were going to get out of the war, um, and that, that was quite clear from around 1968. Uh, the second point is, in terms of the politics in Ruther, Ruther had to back the administration on foreign policy if he was going to get all he wanted domestically, if he was going to get support through the Great Society for his social democratic dream. So he wasn't about to fight with Johnson about the war. And he probably, you know, a lot of his membership agreed with Johnson on the war. Well, we got to fight, you know. And the younger generation took issue with that and assailed him. I mean, you see, and he did not expect this. What I did all, there's a wonderful Thanksgiving dinner. They had uh, Civil War Thanksgivings as we do today over President Trump. They had Civil War Thanksgivings, that is family civil wars at the over the Turkey, over Vietnam. He was assailed at a Passover, I believe, over the union's failure to criticize the Vietnam effort by the youngers. And he's like, wait a minute, guys, I have the world on my shoulders with our union. We're doing so much for African-Americans, for workers, for America. Please don't even, that's ridiculous that you even bring that up. He was very offended. And it did, it did split the union eventually. So Tom, Tom Hayden or somebody would say that even if it wasn't the economics of guns and butter, the political damage that Lyndon Johnson did to himself by prosecuting what the SDS and others said was an immoral war was the, the, the crimes being perpetrated by the Yankee imperialists around the globe undercut Johnson's political standing. And if only, so that there's a lot of if onlyism uh, in our politics today, 
and I noted this with an, another thing that made me think of you and your terrific book, was the RFK Jr. moment that happened earlier this year, where it offers America an alternate time a timeline. And in this version, well, if only Kennedy had not been assassinated, if only Johnson hadn't escalated the Vietnam War, if only these things had not happened, then we would have moved into the sunny uplands that Walter Ruther and these folks had wanted. And their story of the dark turn, whether they blame the CIA for killing JFK or whether they blame Lyndon Johnson, or I guess they probably blame the CIA there somehow. Also, uh, that because of what happened with the war against communism in the 1960s, that it derailed what would have been an otherwise successful effort to make uh, the United States a social democratic utopia. Well, that's exactly right. If onlys are are darn convenient. Mm -hmm. And actually, I I think, you know, if you go back and look at what was going on, the war mattered less than you think. It mattered very much to some people. Let's just say that. Even though there were so many deaths, um, particularly the rapid escalation uh, when Johnson, that was, that was shocking for sure. Um, uh, but I think the social democratic dream was rescued by tragedies such as assassinations and the Vietnam war. It, it gave it the status of socialism, which is, it hasn't been tried yet that argument, right? It, it preserved for it that status. And I do have a chapter on Hayden in the book, you know, and I write, you know, and I think he was, you can pick it up from him. That's the beauty of socialism. It's never done, so it can never be judged, right? It's never done. It's never right. But I do want to mention one thing. There's two things about Ruther, and you know what? You're wondering why we're talking about him. He's. This is the replay we're going to have now if we're not careful. One is he, he went to the Chicago Convention, Democratic National Convention, infamous now, and his goal was to get Humphrey nominated and imagine his how disconcerted he was or his his, his nausea when it, it when he realized he could look out the window of a hotel and see his own child Tom Hayden someone he had funded or someone he knew had funded wrecking the convention with loud protests that were going to and did throw the election to Richard Nixon mhm Thank you, Tom. So, uh, thank you. So, so Ruther actually died. He crashed in a plane going to a little mini utopia he had built with that architect, Oscar Stonerob. And it, it couldn't have been more ironic uh, and sad. He, flied, he flew to his dream one night in one of those tippy Learjets, the early ones, and they crashed with his wife, May. But I did think that was symbolic of the Union endeavor, which is why one wouldn't want to repeat it and why it's of concern that Sean Fain is wandering around grambling about, I don't know what, the billionaire economy. So uh, 1968 election is the hinge point in your book, and it's a hinge point in uh, American history. And I should also say one of the, the delightful things that you do in the book is while you're talking about this, right, the the bloody knuckles the the rough stuff uh, of democratic politics, of union stuff. You tell us the parallel story of what's going on in California and Fairchild Semiconductor and an innovation economy that is happening totally unrelated. It's, it exists. And then one of the things I love about California, it is, a, it is a blessing and a curse for California. They consume American political news uh, generally like Europeans do, which is some of it kind of filters through sometimes. And they're like, oh, I guess that's going on. I don't know. But California is a realm unto itself. And in that realm, the world was being reinvented and remade entirely by people who were absolutely disconnected from the labor strife that was born there at the River Rouge plant, that was born there uh, in, the, in the teens and the 20s. And that, that's a, it's a wonderful device. It's really, really good. But in 1968, after the Democrats eat themselves, right, uh, and after all the tumult of the Democratic nominating contest in which Hubert Humphrey, Walter Ruther, uh, Lyndon Johnson through back channels, 
uh, and party bosses did succeed in cramming down the uh, skept- viewed skeptically by the uh, progressives and the an- more than skeptically by the anti-war left. They did succeed in getting friend of labor Hubert H. Humphrey, the Democratic nomination. He did prevail. And because of, and I, I don't want to put too many trains on the track at the same time, but in part because of the success of the project of Ruther and the progressives on civil rights, a split Democratic Party, the Democrats lose the South and Republicans gain it. And Richard Nixon, uh, defeated in 1960 with the help of Walter Ruther, uh, ascends to the presidency in 1968. So the Republicans take over and they roll back all of the progressivism. They fight back against unions. They put uh, Coolidgean uh, restraint back into government, favor limited government, and the economy prospers and the people are free. Do I have that right? No, you don't have that right. You're teasing me. You're teasing me. It's like, oh my God. One of the happy, like is Andy awake? One of the happy accidents um, of history we have a thing now called right to work where a state can opt out. We had that then because of a law called Taft-Hartley, which is an old law just after the war, which said states can opt out of heavy unionization, to put it simply. I don't think lawmakers realized the power of that opt out. Uh, and then we thereby had a natural experiment all the way to this day. Oh, looky here. What happened in right to work states? What happened in non right to work states? Well, that was almost undone. Johnson, of course, had it on the agenda to end right to work. So all America would be locked into one union land, but he never got around to it. I hate to keep distracting you. The story the story of Everett Dirksen, just tell us very briefly, the story of Everett Dirksen, the Republican from Illinois who backed Lyndon Johnson on civil rights. He, he gave Lyndon Johnson what he wanted on civil rights. And then Lyndon Johnson comes back to Everett Dirksen and says, okay, now I need you on right to work. Now I need you. Now I need you to, to break the companies and create labor land that we want. And Everett Dirksen said, no. Everett Dirksen should be around to run today. He's just the kind of no brand person people like. And he said, no, he, it just rubbed him the wrong way. To for, basically to force people to go into unions to work for a company. They were shocked. Johnson was tired. He was looking at Cronkite, reading the death count, uh, and it never got through. Um, what's interesting is that um, Nixon was also, is also in this book, Nixon, for his own reasons, perpetuated the Great Society, and in some ways expanded it. And I want to give credit here to John Cogan of Stanford and Hoover, who wrote a book on entitlements um, where the data are beautiful. And Danny Heil, who worked on that too. I know because when I did my data, I checked with them. Is this really true? I, I, I Data are an important part of the story. Is this what you see? And a lot of other people, to be sure I was happy with my data. Um, they just, uh, it, it, by the numbers in many places, Nixon expanded the state faster. Why? Well, Democrats had a lot of power in those days, Congress, right? And Nixon even named a Democrat Treasury Secretary, John Connolly, a kind of, um, he, he, let's just say this, he was so big a Texan that even he intimidated even the biggest <laughs> Texan we know, LBJ. Uh, oh, I don't know about John Connolly. Um, and so Nixon comes in and what a pity it is that Nixon, the campaigner talk about if only had been Nixon, the president, he wasn't. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The, the next hinge in your book takes place at Camp David. And it takes place as Richard Nixon. So we had uh, another through line in your book is about monetary policy, which again, very uh, uh, applicable today. And getting the United, the gold standard is killing the United States economy and we're, we're struggling with inflation. And what are we going to do? Well, we've got to get off the gold standard. We've got to get off it in a, in a way we're not telling people. Right, exactly. Because if we tell if we tell them, it'll create a crisis and a panic, and people will freak out. But the Europeans are killing us on the on the exchange, and this is a huge problem. So, Richard Milhouse Nixon. I'm sitting. I, well, you know, under a gold standard, another country at that time could pull gold out. They did. They were, and we were getting close to what we considered and and law made the absolute reserve, the absolute ratio of dollars to gold we had. So what did they do? They they closed, they changed that rule one, and they removed from the wall. There was a weekly report in the journal, and they just they just disappeared. It was just dot 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 where a data point had been because it was an ugly data point. We have too little gold relative to dollars, so it went away. And the final blow to the gold standard was delivered, um, I would say, by Nixon at Camp David. The Camp David story is a great story. It's amazing. It, 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 it's, one, it's one I did not know. It is one that I don't think has been covered enough, but basically, and I want you to tell it, but for the context of it, you have a, you have a situation where, as you say, Nixon had campaigned one way, gets into office. He, too, is paying the political price on Vietnam, but he is paying this terrible political price on inflation and the, and the problems in the economy and all this stuff. So he becomes open to the idea of a planned economy or more open to the idea of a planned economy and uh, uh, and gathers his Solons together at Camp David. And I think my favorite detail in the story is, I think they got windbreakers. Did they get windbreakers? They got windbreakers and some of them got a tumbler. <laughs> so tell us the story of the Camp David meeting. Well, it, it, Shakespeare was referenced at, at, that, at that meeting and it was Shakespearean. You take the best economists in the world, including uh, young George Schultz, uh, for example, Paul, young Paul Volcker, for example, who later became the anti-inflation um, St. George at, at the Fed, uh, and so on. And you, I think Pete Peterson was there too. That, that's the name, you know, we think of Pete Peterson in association with budget balancing. And they all later said mea culpa in their way and wrote apologies pro vita sua, you know, for their, um, at this, but Nixon had world-class economists, which made it harder. So he said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to close the gold window, which means I'm going to close the window to foreign governments that want to pull their gold out. And, um, I'm going to do a lot of other things, mainly with an end to the election. So this was 71 August. The election was 72 November, just around the time that you want to be not have a good economy after that date, right? In the buildup. And Nixon knew that well because he had been told by a Nixon whisperer, Arthur Burns back in 60 that he lost the, re the election because the republic, the economy wasn't doing well, and the incumbents were Republicans in '60. Right, so he was darned if he was going to have a bad economy run up to his reelection, and he decided he would do all sorts of things, which are kind of like an EMT kit. Think of, um, let's say, someone is overdosing on. Oxy, right? You have this shot and that shot, and you have adrenaline. Everything in the economic medical kit of 1971 he was going to do regardless of whether the medicines matched each other he didn't look at the side effects to stick to the medical metaphor he just said i'm going to shoot the economy up so it feels real good until november a year hence but he had to get the economists as cover uh so there were i don't know so many components in the econ plan one was price controls which are un-american 
uh, and the economists knew it. Another was uh, penalties for imports. Well, if you have price controls, and another was closing the gold window. And as some of them pointed out, well, if you close the gold window, you don't need the penalties for the imports, you know, et cetera. But he just loaded every, his whole pharmacopoeia was applied. But he had to get the economists to agree a difficult um, a difficult achievement given the quality of the economists around him, George Schultz of the University of Chicago. But the sheer joy of being with Nixon at Camp David, that euphoria of political power, they had their own medicine, these economists, not economic nostrums, but just the proximity to power, the love of Nixon, the screen doors and the little cabins in Camp David just thrilled them, particularly um, somebody who knew better, Arthur Burns, who was the Fed chairman. And that would be the hardest to convince because Arthur was a self-important and excellent macroeconomist, one of the highest regarded in his trade. And he had a vanity that he was concerned about. You know, he didn't he didn't want his fellow economists to say he had caved to Nixon. You in a Shakespearean manner track the seduction uh, of Arthur Burns. No other word will do. It's sort of like, it's sort of like, I'm sorry I'm gonna say this. Uh, but the death of Stalin movie. Yes. I yes. almost saw Steve Buscemi acting one of these characters. <laughs> you can see them shifting, although, and they came back all happy and announced a um, very un-American plan, worse even than what we announced uh, when COVID happened. Uh, and every stock market thought it was great. Uh, it, it, stock market, uh, you know, stock market was happy the president was doing something. Stock market likes action over inaction, but it, it laid the stage for the stagflation of the 70s. I, I um, kind of was a teenager in the 70s. It was a junk decade. It, talk about coulda, woulda, shoulda. Larry Kudlow has said, you know, look, all these inventions that I cover in my book, they were there in the 60s, but they were stuck on the shelf in the 70s. Why? Because of our perverse policy coming out of that Camp David movie. Um, and, you know, that's that's so it's so interesting. So we lost a decade. We squandered a decade. We didn't have to. The um, the story of your Coolidge book and your your important work and you have succeeded uh, in burnishing the rightfully burnishing the reputation of Calvin Coolidge uh, and rescuing him from being a punchline uh, in American history that. The courage to not act uh, and intervene when you are surrounded by sycophants, are surrounded by people that tell you how powerful and important you are, and whose own status derives from you doing stuff. Uh, and in the Coolidge book, you talk about Hoover a lot, uh, who was the, the forerunner of the sort of uh, micromanaging, technocratic, we can do it all. There's a, there is an answer. We just have to... I hate the phrase, the levers of government. We have to, we have to know how to operate the levers here. Know how to operate the levers. Yeah, we have to create these outcomes and we can do these things and all of that stuff. And, you know, if Burns was seduced, so was Nixon, right? Uh, so too was Nixon seduced by power and by the, the possibility of the things that you could do. And Nixon, in, I, I see Nixon in your story as a person who probably knows better and starts out skeptical. But the political exigency, exigency of the moment opened his Overton window, right? Like, well, we got to do something. We're going to have to do something. What is it going to be? And then McNamara-level groupthink sets in. Look at how smart these people are. Look at George Schultz. Look at Burns. I've got the best, the smartest, the best people here, and we've all gathered, and we're going to save the world. It's very hard to give that up. Uh, it's very hard to let that dream in that moment die. And it's uh, uh, Shakespearean is the only word for it. So think of Arthur as playing Cassandra. Yes. I always wanted to, but we all know people who could play that role. And I wonder who would be, uh, who Steve Buscemi would play. Um, <laughs> who's the Khrushchev here? He, and I had a very nice correspondence with George Schultz. At, George Schultz is a fine man. 
And I had a very nice correspondence with him the first time I wrote about this. He said, you haven't got me quite right. It wasn't me who wrote that. And, and he was probably right. It wasn't George who wrote that. Um, and maybe I was not sufficiently appreciative of his role there. But the main thing is they all went along. And being there does matter. I, I, off, I actually was thinking of Coolidge's line because I wrote this book after Coolidge, where Coolidge did say, uh, you got to get out of the presidency because you're increasingly, as you said just now, Chris, surrounded by yes men and panderers. And it, you, Coolidge actually said that in his autobiography, which the Coolidge Foundation published um, with ISI. I recommend it. Uh, it has French flaps. It's a nice book. Um, <laughs> but everything you everything you you need to know, Coolidge said. That's one of the long, you know, I think his, his, uh, what's the word, his vision of what was wrong was probably Theodore Roosevelt, but he was too polite to say it. And I'm working now on Theodore Roosevelt. So, <gasps> oh, so the, tell there, me what to do. There's <laughs> the, there's the lead. There's, oh, I'm, I'm so excited because there's nothing like the misty hagiographic lust for the, the non-existent story, the, the false story of Theodore Roosevelt, that dis when we think about things from history that distort our understanding of the present, it is who Theodore Roosevelt was and what he did and what worked and what didn't work. And I have an obsession with the election of 1912. I am like, I have an unhealthy degree of obsession. Uh, and William Howard Taft uh, has become a hero of mine because of his courage, because of the political courage that he exhibited uh, when his old boss came back to eat his liver. Yeah, he's a little bit, he's a very familiar type. Uh, William Howard Taft, what, what Mark Twain said uh, about 1908, which is the election before, and Twain is in my book. There's right. no bitterer crit criticizer of, of TR than Twain, interestingly. Uh, Twain said, in, in 1908, I'm going to vote for the monarchy. Which is to say, I'll vote for Taft. <laughs> and he, he, he didn't dislike Taft. I think he, he said he, the main thing about him is he's not Roosevelt. And he's not, but, and I, there's a couple good books about Taft. I think Rosen wrote one. Oh, okay. Yeah, there are a couple good books about Taft. Uh, I, he's very Bush-like, you know. He reminds me of the Bushes. Uh, he's got uh, a lot of that, hesitate to say, but Yale culture. Yale culture, um, family pedigree. Yale culture in a good way, I should say. I love that in the in the lobby of the United States Chamber of Commerce hangs a portrait of uh, William Howard Taft, and he looks the part. He it, when you see the portrait in the place, it's all it all lines up. Yeah, and if I had to work for a TR, I would have eaten a lot of cookies at night. Too. <laughs> dare dare I ask? Dare I ask? When we can expect to see this Roosevelt book? I'm hoping eighteen months. Oh, I, okay. I wish it were sooner. That's a little ambitious. No, maybe two years. That's a little ambitious. I don't want it to take so long. Uh, um, it's really, all books are life and times, right? Yes. So the Coolidge book started out as a book about the 20s, actually. And then I shifted to Calvin because he told the story, carried the story so well. And I'm on the same now because um, the robber baron vision, you know, what was TR fighting against. He was fighting against malefactors of wealth. He was the octopus hunter and so on. That's right. And someone said, I think it was Elihu, you, you realize you're dealing with a five-year-old when you're yeah. dealing with TR, right? And the, the Trump-TR comparison is real. There's there's stuff in there. There's there, there's lots of cool echoes. But, but you know what? Even if Trump, President Trump is not in the picture, what you put your finger on is there is an appetite for populism in America. And that's what opens us to candidates who might not be coherent. Because my definition of populism is it's a collection of impulses from real wrongs, but the impulses aren't a program. Yes, that's right. Very much so. They're not coherent. Okay, we've come to the end. And I am sad and sorry because I could talk to you literally. I could talk to you all day. Uh, you are... Uh, a national treasure. Your histories have been essential in helping Americans better understand the world we inherited in the 21st century and why they're practical, they're useful, they're important. I love them. 
Uh, and thank you so much for being with us today. I hope everybody who hasn't done it reads The Great Society. It is an, you will say a hundred times as you read it. Oh, oh, that, oh. Thank you. I wanted to mention Jonah's book. I, I think I need to show appreciation for Jonah. Uh, and particularly now that I'm working on his, one of the areas he covered. Jonah took issue with Forgotten Man because he thought it was a foreshortened version of history. Because there I was, I started with, what, 1927 or 28? It had all, all the ammo was already out, right, waiting to fire, was Jonah's point. And here Amity pretends history started in 27. And to some extent, he was right. He was right. I just had to start the book somewhere. And you can't, if you say it all began with the Sherman Act, that's a, an awkward time frame for a book. Books have to have velocity, you know. Um, but Jonah was right, and I want to tell him that. Okay, Amity Schleys, we just need uh, to say thank you, and we need to say how grateful we are to you and what an important resource that you are for scholarship and clear thinking in the United States of America. Thank you. Thank you, The Remnant. Okay, uh, listeners, Jonah will come back. He will get out of his van one day. He will return to civilization. Uh, but until then, we love you. Uh, and we thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is my podcast. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.